You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. This is Dr. Saba Maruf, and you are listening to Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on Podcast Detroit. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Unsung Heroes here on Podcast Detroit. I'm super excited to welcome you to another episode um, and welcome you to our show where our purpose here is to share amazing stories and unique narratives of individuals who have been sparked by their passion to become movers, shakers, and change makers in our communities. And we truly hope that by sharing these stories of positivity, we will inspire you to live a life of purpose and action. Um, And we really try to um, share stories of inspiration and impact. And you can find us on Facebook where you can find posts about all of our past episodes. and um, as well as uh, future episodes. And also um, you can find everything on the website, podcastdetroit.com and iTunes as well. Um, and, you know, while you're there, if you can leave a little review, um, especially on iTunes, that'll um, really make my day. So uh, that'll be great. Thank you. Um, but I'm really excited to welcome you to another show here. And I uh, also want to say hi to Jess, our sound engineer. Hi, how are you today? Good. How are you? Good. It's kind of rainy outside. A little so bit cold. Little delayed. <laughs> but you know what? It's been so beautiful and it's going to be gorgeous yeah. next week. Three days is nothing. Yeah, exactly. So. Get some water in if you planted any plants Oops. Um, over the past few days. Um, and then um, Calvin is not in our studio today. He's not going to be on the show today and we're really going to miss him. But he has some really exciting um, stuff happening where his um, tour company actually uh, merged or got bought by like kind of combined with um, the Detroit. Was it the Detroit bus company, Detroit touring company? I believe so. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is super exciting. So we really wish him well. And he's going to be back um, from time to time on the show. But I know that he's gotten super busy. So we miss you, Calvin. Congratulations and good luck. Um, but I'm really excited to welcome our guest for today, and that is somebody that we. This is someone that we've been meaning to have on, and so I was kind of bummed that Calvin couldn't be here because you know, Rosie, he kept mentioning your name, and was like, "You need to have him on," and I know you've you guys have met each other, and and you've been on his show, um, but definitely want to welcome um, Rosie Jeffrey. Hey, Hi, Rosie. How are Hi. you? Good. How are you doing? Good. I'm, I'm really super happy excited. to be here. Oh, yeah. thank you. <laughs> Thanks for. Um, coming out and um, taking I know you're super busy and taking some time out of your busy schedule so I'm excited that we're able to do this Um, but yeah we've been meaning to have you on for a while we actually had um, um, Sally um, Howell on a few months ago actually was I think it was last summer Um, we talked about her book and um, some of the amazing work that she's doing and your name came up a lot too because as you mentioned you (laughs) guys collaborate a lot on projects Mm -hmm. and you said you're creative collaborators what did you I just I just yeah I just I like said that, that she was my creative collaborator That's one awesome. of my many creative collaborators yeah awesome <laughs> yeah. um so welcome yeah, thank you just as a brief introduction um but I, I want Rosie to do most of the talking um but he is a Detroit-based documentary photographer and filmmaker educator and entrepreneur whose work spans topics of religion culture and social entrepreneurship and he was previously a fellow in the documenting Detroit fellowship in documentary photography and photojournalism. Uh, Most recently, he was named a member of the New York Foundation for the Arts, NYFA, Immigrants Artists Mentorship Program. That sounds really cool. Um, And recently, he also worked on a project, which we'll talk about, for National Geographic magazine. Um, That's a pretty big deal. As a producer and consultant on a multimedia story on Muslims in America. 
And he's also been working on completing a documentary film about Hamtramck, examining the benefits and tensions of multiculturalism and diversity through the lens of Hamtramck's 2017 municipal elections. So, wow, that is those are a lot of really cool um, topics, actually. And I hope we get to, um, you know, kind of dabble into each one of those um, yeah. really cool projects that you've been involved in. Mm-hmm. So thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, Rosie, tell us a little bit about um, about yourself and kind of yeah. your background and life growing up as, you know, here in the Detroit area as a Muslim American. Yeah, um, I think I'll start with, you know, my, my family's um, migration story. And uh, we moved to the United States in 1983. Um, I was a little over a year old um, at the time. And uh, so I was born in India, um, as with much of my family. Um, we came here because we were sponsored by um, my uncle, um, who passed away, unfortunately, uh, last spring. Um, and he'd come here as a medical, um, as, as a physician uh, to the United States. And him and my aunt uh, decided, like many um, immigrants during that period in the 60s and 70s, to start sponsoring their relatives. Mm-hmm. So my aunt started sponsoring her siblings and her family and my uncle, uh, my mom's brother, began to sponsor um, his siblings as well. And so eventually we were all slowly trickling you know, into Detroit and we lived in this little apartment building on Peterborough and Cass. And um, mm-hmm. some of us you know, that were in elementary school went to uh, Burton, um, which is not a uh, school anymore, not in that location. But um, so that was kind of where things started for us in the United States. And I have two brothers, one older brother who was born in India and my younger brother who was born uh, the year that we the year that we arrived um, in the United States. And so we, you know, we spent the early part of our um, life in Detroit and uh, my parents were in their mid and mid and late 30s when we arrived. So it was kind of a reset period for uh, my parents in terms of, you know, especially with my dad and his career, you know, kind of starting over <coughs> and you know, leaving a stable job and, you know, hometown and uh, family and friends behind to come here and start a new life, uh, really for us to have some of those advantages. And uh, we were able to to, to do that. And so uh, after that, we, you know, after living in Detroit for uh, many years, we moved to the Downriver area. And so that's where I went to high school and um my my family often, and especially in those early years, we migrated kind of in packs. And so you know, initially my cousins moved to Taylor um, and then my family moved to Taylor as well. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of just would like follow each other around and, you know, we didn't really know about places and cities and schools and things like that. So it was just like you're just kind of relying on whoever's in the community that might, you know, uh, tr- you know, lead the way and you just kind of follow them. And so that's how we ended up there. And it's funny because from our apartment building in Detroit on Peterborough to our first apartment in Taylor, it was like all of us moved together. So, you know, my cousins moved to this neighborhood um, in Taylor, or this apartment complex, and my, my family moved there. And then eventually, you know, I went on to college. I went to the University of Michigan-Dearborn and I studied engineering and, you know, for various reasons, I, I chose that. And part of it was having grown up, you know, pretty working class and at times, you know, kind of struggling and 
feeling like there was a need to have some economic stability in my life. And there, I wouldn't say that, it, you know, for me, there was a ton of pressure to pursue one thing or the other. I think, um, you know, as kind of typically goes with South Asian parents, there mm -hmm. was a little bit of that uh, at different periods of my academic career, but never like a really, you know, strong push to pursue one thing or the other. I was always kind of set on wanting to study um, architecture or engineering. And actually, architecture is what I originally wanted to study and um, eventually due to various reasons I decided not to because I didn't think it was going to be a very stable job and I chose engineering because I thought it would you know be a little bit more stable and so of course like you can tell I'm being driven by some of those traditional insecurities mm -hmm. and, and and values and and so not necessarily pursuing what I thought would be worthy, worthwhile or meaningful, but what would just provide a stable life, you know, a stable conventional life. And so I, I did that, you know, and um, uh, I decided not to study architecture. I just chose to study engineering. And I, you know, I kind of was just going along the process and, you know, I got an internship in college and I, and I worked that internship that led to a job. And, you know, those jobs led to other jobs. Those jobs led to promotions and, you know, all kinds of things. And then, um, you know, I, I, uh, then there's another part of my life, which, um, a little bit more personal. Um, you know, I, I met someone, I fell in love and we got married in 2008. Um, uh, that marriage didn't, didn't work out, you know, unfortunately, and I got divorced in 2015. Um, so it marked the end of a seven year um, relationship. And, uh, after that divorce, um, at least professionally, I knew that I had to, uh, professionally and personally, I knew that I had to change a lot of things in my life. And, you know, work was just always so hard for me, um, not intellectually, but um, I think psychologically and emotionally, mm -hmm. you know, I'd often go to work and it just it felt like suffering, you know, and mm -hmm. I actually... Um, I actually do suffer from an anxiety disorder and I think it was just amplifying, you know, amplifying it, just being at work, being in a place I didn't want to be and um, being in a place, but then fantasizing about all these other things, many of the things that I'm doing now, you know, and I think the, um, the, the, the unfortunate end of the marriage, uh, the silver lining, however, um, was that it allowed me to think a little bit more freely in some ways. And it allowed me to um, pursue things I maybe would not have um, in my past, either prior to the marriage or during the marriage. And so I, you know, started taking uh, some of my creative ideas more seriously. And, uh, you know, one of the first things I did was when I, when I left my job, I didn't really have a plan. So in April of 2015, I I left my job and um, I didn't really have a major plan. I knew that I was not well. I knew that I wasn't feeling well. I knew that I was, um, you know, struggling with the end of the marriage. And, um, you know, so I wanted to focus on healing and I wanted to give back, you know, but I didn't really have like a big, you know, vision for what I would do. And, you know, so once somebody told me that, you know, we don't make big changes in our lives, um, save for inspiration or desperation. And I was not really inspired, but I definitely think I was pretty desperate <laughs> at the time. Mm. And, you know, just wanting to heal um, mm. through the process. And so I made a couple of decisions at that at that time. You know, one was to, uh, I, I had started this little um, startup project uh, with a friend of mine, Haris Ahmed, um, who you know, and mm -hmm. um, you should also have on the show sometime. <laughs> um, you know, he's got tons of creative and entrepreneurial projects um, going does. on. Mm -hmm. So the in the year or two prior to that, um, I had known this about Harris, but he had 
he's an attorney, as you know, but he had also actually taught himself how to write code. And so he became a developer. And so he, you know, a couple months before I left my job, you know, we started talking about ideas and he showed me a couple of apps that he'd worked on uh, with some other friends of ours. And um, for various reasons that, you know, that idea didn't go anywhere, but um, or at least it's on, you know, that was on the table. But so I proposed an idea to Horace. And so in February of that year, we started working on this little app project. And it was uh, kind of like this online and mobile-based marketplace for services, but it had like the social impact component to it. So if you hired me mm-hmm. to cut your grass and it's like 20 bucks, instead of taking the money, I have the option of putting it in a fund where someone from a uh, low-income or underserved community can withdraw from it and then have a service done. That's either a home repair or a car repair or something like that. So, oh, wow. so that project was called NeighborFix and we took it to startup competitions. You know, we, you know, it was basically like what I was working on um, wow. for the time and not, you know, not earning any money, you know, or anything mm. like that. You know, I was just kind of living off savings. And um, so, uh, you know, so I worked on that for a little bit, but also spending my time volunteering, you know, um, uh, take, so taking some of my art practices a little bit more seriously. I think one of the first things I did was, um, I think it was a day after um, I was no longer working at the at the company that I was at. I just walked around Detroit with my camera and just photographed and it was just such a great feeling. <laughs> and I think I like slept in that day and it just felt really good. Free. And yeah, I felt really free. And um, So how, how long did you work as an engineer then? I worked as an engineer from, well, basically starting in like 2002 as an intern mm-hmm. all the way until 2015. So about 13 years. You wow. know? And I graduated in college in 2005. So you know, 10 years professionally and mm-hmm. before that as an intern for a couple of years, you know. So I was in the industry for a while and I worked in the automotive industry and then biotech um, a little bit later. But it <laughs> sounds like you always had, so you always had kind of a creative. Yeah, you know, creative and I think it kind of went dormant. Calling. Yeah, it kind of went dormant for a while. Growing up, I always sketched and drew and I was always into, you know, that part of myself, uh, you know, but slowly it kind of just faded away in high school and particularly mm-hmm. in college. And then obviously in my professional life, it was nearly buried, you know. Um, but I, you know, would kind of dabble in things on the side. And I think after leaving my job, I had the emotional um, freedom to to start expressing myself in that way again. And that manifests, manifested itself, in, you know, in a couple of ways. I mean, I, I've tried like a number of things and you know, one one of the other decisions that I made um, was to move into this home on the west side of Detroit. Is already in the neighborhood that I lived in, but um, my friend and neighbor um, Sean, when I told him I was going through a divorce and I was going to be leaving the neighborhood, um, offered a room in his house. And the house was set up as an artist collective, um, kind of all the, mm. uh, from the beginning, as this idea for you know creative people or people that are interested in living in community to um, live in this home for you know, various lengths of time, periods of time and, and contribute, you know, to that community through either farming or art, um, you know, agriculture, you know, making and sharing food. And so it was kind of a new, um, and strange experience for me. But, uh, at that time in that summer, that was in April of 2015, it was just going to be him and I. And so, you know, I was like, you know what, Uh, I'm just going to give this a shot, you know, because I'm kind of open to a lot of new things. And, at that time, it was before I decided to, before I left my job and I thought maybe I would get like an apartment or a condo in like Ann Arbor or Detroit. But when that came up, 
And the reason I bring it up is because that's such a it's such a living in that particular space was such a um, an important part of my creative life, and and it also I think being around people. Um, help through the healing process. You know, it wasn't like I would just sit around talking about my divorce you know, all the time, but um, it just was nourishing being around people. It was nourishing being in, you know, a, a big house that, you know, people could like cook and share and, you know, make food mm-hmm. and make ceramics. There was a pottery studio and a wood <coughs> shop in the basement. And so I was able to, you know, start dabbling in some of that, you know, as well. And and so Sean, the guy that owns the house, um, he um, is a, is a potter and very kind soul. And so, um, through him, you know, uh, all of us were, you know, that were living in the house were able to, um, you know, learn, you know, ceramics in, in a way. Wow. And so, uh, so th- that so was a, a lot of changes. So there's a lot of changes. Yeah. Like relation, I mean, marriage and, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and so around the same time you left your job too. Yeah, exactly. Moving into a new place. Start. So I don't, I mean, that, those are a lot of changes <clears throat> for anybody, but I think particularly being, of immigrant background mm-hmm. in South Asian, like it's like yeah. your life is kind of like is supposed to take a certain trajectory, mm-hmm. maybe for many people, but I mean, I think especially kind of with our culture, yeah. And so that must have been um, really hard and yeah. um, scary. Yeah, I think you know it. W- it was scary um, at times. It was also a lot of fun, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and um, I think you know, from my par- parents' point of view, I think it was like the first time they saw me as an adult you know, after having gone through that loss. And I think they, um, I think maybe if I was younger, they might not have handled it the same way, but they really gave me a lot of space, which Mm. was really good. You know, um, I think I, you know, in hindsight, I really appreciate that. And I think, you know, I was, it was like such a tough period. And, you know, often is the case with people that go through, you know, a divorce or any kind of like big loss, you know, is you um you tend to become reclusive you know mm-hmm. and you don't you know you feel there's nothing to be ashamed of but you feel ashamed you feel embarrassed and you know you don't want to be around people you know especially like close friends and relatives and so for a long time people, like people can ask questions yeah, and people, you don't feel like talking about it you haven't yeah. really processed it maybe on yeah. your own Right. Or like, you know, you might go to a dinner party and like six people in a row subsequently, you know, ask about it, you know, and then you're just mm-hmm. like repeating things over and over again. And it's just kind of, you know, I, I just kind of took a break, you know, from all that and just stayed in my shell a little bit. And, and unfortunately, you know, there were people that I didn't talk to for a long time who I've since reckoned, you know, sort of revived those relationships, you know, and friendships with. But but you also uh, had this nourishing yeah, environment too. I, I did. I had this nourishing environment so I could kind of stay within my own little world and um, and form mm-hmm. some new friendships and, you know, uh, some close ones, you know, took different directions. And so um, it was just a big, big time for change. And it was a, you know, it was also a time to just try new things for me as well. And um, so that was, you know, fun and exciting, you know, but also not just fun for the sake of fun, but it was mm-hmm. also fun for the sake of healing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was, um, it was trying new things, you know, for the, for the purpose of healing and, and yeah, just also just like new experiences, you know, I've always been the type of person that's been very curious about the world and very curious about people. And so, you know, as a kind of a way to just experiment around that stuff. Yeah. Wow. So, Actually, I remember um, even if you look at the the balance, is it called like the wellness wheel or the mm-hmm. balance wheel, 
the last time I was looking at it, I think I was at a, a conference actually, and I never really realized it before. But there is a there's a piece of the pie there that is for like creativity, mm-hmm. creative creative outlets. Yeah, which is really interesting because it's not just like necessarily like an extracurricular thing or yeah. some. I mean, that's like really important for um, your development and. Um, catharsis as a cathartic yeah. experience and i think that's very true that we all kind of get into um i mean i'm at that point in my life too where it's like you've gone through school you've done what you're you know you you've kind of um you think that you should be fulfilled because you've achieved everything that you set yeah, out to do yeah. but then you're like okay is this in especially if you've been working hard mm-hmm. and you know for years and then you get there and if you don't have if you don't really uh, look for those outlets or fulfill those outlets, then you can feel a little bit empty, especially yeah. if you're a creative person mm-hmm. at heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, unfortunately, I know too many people that are in this, you know, situation. And I think also there's a, there's, there's a type of person that, um, you know, and I can think of really amazing examples. There's a type of person that um, can compartmentalize their life. And, you know, so they might be an accountant by day or, you mm-hmm. know, physician or, you know, whatever they might do. And then they have this whole other life, you know, as an activist or as an artist, you know, and for them, there's no mm. tension between the two. And so for me, you know, I, it was very hard to live like that, you know, and so um, there has to be more of an alignment between those two worlds, or that at least the line needs to be a little bit more blurred mm. um, between the between the two. And so now I would say, like, somebody asked me this question recently, and I, um, I, I have been thinking and talking about it a lot lately, but they asked me, what do I do for fun? And it just, it's a question that I hadn't mm. gotten in a long time. And I thought about it and I, I realized that actually the line between fun and work is pretty blurred because I have a lot of fun with a lot of the things I do, whether it's the nonprofit that I work for or, um, you know, the filmmaking or photography. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's all stuff like I was kind of joking about earlier. You know, these are things that I may have fantasized about, you know, sitting in my cubicle or sitting in my office, mm. you know, three or four years prior. And now I'm actually doing it, you know. And then wow. it, there's also this really great, uh, you know, a couple of things that were like, you know, kind of um, funny that happened after I left my job. But my my friend Imran Baig, um in uh, January of or like December of 2015, he like called me randomly at like in you know, November, December that year. And he was like, Hey, do you want to go to Greece to volunteer on this like aid mission? And uh, I was just like, I suppose I could go. <laughs> I, I don't have a, I don't have a day job, you know? So, you know, I, I suppose I could go. And, and so it was like this very spontaneous thing, you know, that I was able to go for a couple of weeks and, wow. you know, volunteer as an aid worker. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I, I, it's unlikely that that would have happened, mm. you know, um, had I just, you know, had, had I been, in the job that I was in prior to that, you know, I, I would not have had the, the freedom to be able to do that. And then for me, it was just one of my most, um, worthwhile and meaningful experiences. I'm so glad I did that. And then, you know, just going, you know, I went up to Flint a couple of times, just like on a Tuesday, you know, I just like, mm. you know, just wake up and, you know, like, okay, you know, I'm going to go up to Flint and volunteer and, you know, give back and, and, uh, you know, and so uh, it's just that that opportunity, you know, um, wouldn't have been there, you know, before, or th- I wouldn't have been able to put the energy towards it. So th- these are all, you know, some of the some of the things that I was 
that I was spending my time doing. And then the following year in the summer of 2016 or the spring of 2016, spring of 2016, um, had this really couple of really amazing opportunities I applied to and was accepted into two professional, um, fellowships. And one was in, um, human centered design. Um, the other one was in documentary, um, photography and photojournalism. And they were like really just kind of, they were really like back to back. Um, they overlapped. They were actually held in the same space <laughs> even. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so both of them kind of led me to these incredible, you know, roads and, um, Sevilla, the, the nonprofit where I did the design fellowship, um, led me to, um, Henry Ford Learning Institute, um, kind of in an indirect way. Um, but that's also a design based nonprofit, but it, Sevilla prepared me um, for this role. And then uh, the documenting Detroit uh, led to the opportunity with National Geographic magazine to work on this like multimedia project as a producer and consultant um, on the story about Muslims in America. Yeah, tell us about that. So it was a proposal that came from um, uh, Lindsay Adario, who's a brilliant um, photojournalist, um, one of the most hardest working and empathic uh, photographers in the world. And so she, because of her work in the Muslim world, um, had become intimately close to many, many Muslims around the world, uh, mostly abroad, actually. And and then having, you know, she lives in London, but, and mostly works overseas, uh, but then being an American, you know, she's like one of these people that has a foot in both sides of the ocean. And then mm. looking back and kind of her her home country and seeing how Muslims are um, treated, how they're talked about, how they're understood, how they're viewed, and recognizing that there is a huge gap between what she's experiencing in her line of work and then what how people talk about Muslims. And so she proposed the story to National Geographic and eventually um, it got accepted and it got picked up. So in January of 2017, um, you know, we we all started working together and there were, there was another photographer, Wayne Lawrence, who was on the project as well. So much of my role was to provide some some creative arc, you know, for the, you know, for the for the story, for the photography. Um, so that included, you know, what stories to cover, you know, who to cover, who to photograph, who to talk to. Um, and then there was, there's several different components to the story as a big, big project. Um, so there was, uh, an article that was written beautifully by Layla Fadel. Um, there was the photography, you know, Lindsay's photography, there was Wayne Lawrence's photography and portraits. Um, and then there was a web documentary. Mm. Um, and then Katie Kirk did an hour long special on the yeah. Geo channel that, mm-hmm. um, you know, okay, sort of, so they're all related. They're all related. It, mm. it, it all kind of came out around the same oh, time. Okay. So to a varying degree, I had contribution wow. to each, you know, one of them. And the one that was on t- the Katie Kirk one, not very much. I did speak to her producer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just had a, a nice long conversation one one time, and and I think it ended up you know turning out really beautifully. But um, but I well, was really, Leila Fadel. She's from NPR. She's and from. So I heard a, the piece. Yeah, she, she's from NPR, and that's that, that's a continuation of her work mm-hmm. um, that she that has been doing now. Um, and so it's an extension of the Nat Geo project. But wow. so we got to travel together. So the three of us, you know, um, we went to Chicago, Pennsylvania. Um, I listened I got to, to the Chicago piece. I think. Yeah, and I and. Really I, I got to travel with Lindsay a little bit more, you know, as well. And she came to Michigan a couple times. And so part of it was like, you know, just being a fixer, you know, finding stories, uh, connecting to people. And then when she would travel to other places, whether it was California or Texas, um, you know, New York, uh, finding other stories, you know, for her. So through my own network of, you know, Muslim friends and family and relatives, uh, you know, I was able to 
um, connect her and find other people that could help when she was traveling. And then, what also, kind of stories were they looking for, and what what stories have they highlighted? Well, um, there's there's a lot. Yeah. You know, I mean, Muslims are, in mm-hmm. in my humble opinion, the most diverse um, community in the United States, and so. Part of the story was to look at that diversity and part of the story was to look at that range of ethnicity, of socioeconomics, of gender identity, you know, anything you can really think of is a really broad story. So part of it is capturing it visually, you know, through that part of it, you know, so it's like, okay, you know, someone might have a really interesting job. They might be a CEO, you know, or, you know, uh, they might be a really accomplished scientist, but that photograph in a boardroom, it's just not that interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not compelling. It's not visually appealing, you know, but you have a guy in Texas who's been impersonating Elvis for the last 30 years, <laughs> you know, who's, you know, a middle-aged Pakistani man, uh, Pakistani-American man, and that becomes really striking, you know, mm-hmm. or a firefighter, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, you see a Nikabi in Hamtramck that's riding her bike, you know, just down the street, you know, mm-hmm. it's like really striking, you know, um, or Brother Ali, you know, the hip hop artist at a show. And so you begin to start seeing visually this uh, mosaic of Muslims who are represented, who are representing all different kinds of backgrounds, all different types of identities. Um, and so that's where, you know, that's where it comes in, you know, and so and then also looking at things like rituals, um, rituals and ceremonies. Um, so we went to, you know, several weddings. We went to a couple of funerals and janazas. And, you know, we were able to capture those moments as well. And so, you know, there's a certain way in which Muslims bury um, their mm-hmm. deceased and or bury their loved ones. There are certain ways in which Muslims get married. And part of that is, you know, Islamic law, you know, provides a certain runway, you know, for, for, for that. And then the rest of it is cultural, you know. And so how do um, Bengali-American Muslims um, – celebrate weddings you know how does an african-american family uh um uh mark a funeral you know and uh so those are some of the things that we looked at and then on the writing piece um you know you can capture some of those other stories that might not be as appealing visually because you can get more nuanced um into the story through an interview then you can get into that you know one of the most interesting places we went to was this farm in Pennsylvania called Farm of Peace. And it's in uh, southern, kind of the central part of southern Pennsylvania. It's this um, Muslim community made up of, uh, you know, a group of people who some of them are converts, um, you know, some of them are are not, uh, but they have founded this um, beautiful community and have many, many acres of land that they that they work on. And some people live there as well. And um, they slaughter their own animals. They raise them in ethical oh. ways and um, they eat the most pure foods. And they, you know, they, they just live this, uh, what to me looked like a very idyllic life. Mm. And, Reminds um, me kind of the Amish yeah, but but yeah, I mean different. they're definitely more connected, okay. you know, to the to the larger world, you okay. know, and uh, you know, but it's very rural, you know, and so that was one of those experiences that, on all fronts, you know, visual, audio, you know, interviews, I think was just incredible because, you know, their their connection to the land, their connection mm-hmm. to the earth, um, and their connection to their faith um, was so palpable. 
you know, I mean, it's just really intense, you know, and yeah. it's just something you can feel. And I really hope to go back and visit just as a, as a person, you know, Maybe, um, like, as a guest, there, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, spend a weekend there, spend, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of weeks there, um, you know, working with them and, and spending time with them because it's a really special place. And, you know, Where is it? it's it? in, it's called Farm of Peace. Okay. So if wow. you Googled it, they do have a website and everything. So, so that's mm-hmm. why I was, you know, kind of joking about your comment about there being like the Amish, you know, <laughs> so they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, Kind they're on hard. social media. Yeah, they're on social media. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're not that isolated. But, um, but you know, they do. They have their own community, and and uh, they, um, like the purity. It sounds like I mean, yeah. just like an honoring the earth. And exactly. Yeah, and honoring the animals. And, and, yeah. And, yeah. You know, they raise lamb. They, um, you know, it's just a, such a beautiful community. You know? Which is so um, integral to uh, our faith too. Absolutely. In, in, yeah. in Islam, but sometimes living in the big city, you kind of. Yeah. Or in suburbs, in suburbia, yeah. you kind of mm-hmm. forget that connection. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I mean, there were so many incredible stories. And um, there was a lot in Detroit, you know, some really incredible stories in Detroit, Hamtramck, you know, Dearborn, and some of the other places we went to um, in the area. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was it was a huge collection. I You know, I highly recommend anyone to read it, you know. Where can you find this work? Uh, it's the current uh, issue of National Geographic magazine. Oh, wow. So so Amazing. it's out on newsstands now. It's the, you know, the article's online. You can read it online. And I would also encourage people to follow Layla, you know, on mm-hmm. NPR and follow her work. And she's doing some really beautiful work on Muslims in America right now and uh, really getting down to some really nuanced, um, you know, and intimate stories, you know, wow. and I highly, highly recommend that. So, um, so that's easily, you know, if you just search for Layla Fadel NPR, mm-hmm. Muslims in America, you'll easily find that um and it was just really amazing working with them and it was you know the way that it happened was um one of the photo editors from nat geo um guy by the name of jamie welford he was one of the mentors in the documenting detroit fellowship that i was in and he you know just emailed me out of the blue i think in december of um 2016 or january of 2017 and asking me if i wanted to be on this project and i saw the email address from nat geo and he went by jamie and his email address said james and i was like oh who is this guy you know mm-hmm. and then, <laughs> and i wrote him back and he was you know and then he, he you know i remember i remember remembered him and and so things kind of just went from there and you know i kind of bring that part of it up is you know i i always try to encourage people that um you know, I think sometimes I talk to people that like are really looking to make a change in their life. And, uh, you know, you don't have to do something drastic. Like there's Mm -hmm. a lot, often there's opportunities that are available that are like professional development, you know, training that you can do if you're looking to make a pivot in your life. And had it not been for documenting Detroit, I would not be able to do half the work that I'm doing now. Not only, you know, did it give me the confidence, but it gave me the network and some of the opportunities to be able to pursue some of the projects that are, you know, sort of swirling around in my head. Um, wow. one, of the, one of them uh, was the documentary that I'm working on, the film documentary, um, which is called Hemtramic USA. And I'm working on that with a friend and uh, create another creative partner of mine, Justin Feltman. And uh, the way that came about was um, Justin and I met through a mutual friend, David Silver, um, who runs Horsepower Detroit, who you should also um, interview. It's a really amazing program. But um, Justin, during the 2016 elections, was really interested in the perspectives of um, marginalized communities during the election process. So he was like, where can I go where I can just basically cover all those components, you know, all, many of those communities. So he decided to come to Michigan because Michigan has a large African-American, large Muslim, large Arab population, 
large Hispanic population. So he was like, I'm going to just come to Michigan. And this it's also happens to be a battleground um, state. Mm -hmm. So he came here and uh, he had asked our friend David if uh, David knew anyone in the Muslim community that might be able to help him um, find subjects or people to interview. And Marco then, Rubio moment. Marco Rubio moment. I, yeah, <laughs> Sip some water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, and uh, mm -hmm. so David recommended me and Justin and I met and we started talking. And I I had sent him a few people to interview and to talk to um, about the elections. And actually, we were together on election night. Um, you know, we were at the Arab American National Museum because oh, he was wow. working on the documentary and he was getting. What was that like? I mean, it was very sad. <laughs> yeah. It was very, it was very, it was oh emotional. God. I think it was shocking. Like another you know, funeral. <laughs> yeah, it was like being at a funeral, and and you're kind of looking around the room, and you're seeing the faces just drop, you know. And I think you know, coming into that night, I think there there was a lot of excitement. You know, nobody. Mm -hmm. I think, especially in some communities, I think people thought there's no way this guy could win, and you know, Hillary should be hanging up drapes, you know, in the, in the White House, and you know, obviously, it ended up not being true, and. I think there were, there were other forces at play that, you know, people were not considering, you know. So anyways, uh, it was pretty shocking. And so Justin and I, you know, that night and, you know, because uh, he'd done a couple of trips, you know, we'd started talking about films and, you know, what are some of our favorite films? And we started talking about working on maybe possibly working on a project together. And we thought about Hamtramck because he'd visited Hamtramck many times. And and so, you know, we were both kind of like, yeah, it'd be great to make a documentary about Hamtramck. And we were just brainstorming. We we're like, you know, it'd, it'd be really great if there was like some event or like an election that we could follow or something. And so um, we were just like, well, let's just look it up. When are Hamtramck's elections, you know, coming up? And it was actually that year, you know. So him and I were having this conversation in November of 2017, uh, or I'm sorry, November of 2016, around the time of the, the federal election or the national elections. And... Um, so we realized that there was an election coming up in 2017. And so really that um, moment was the start of this film. And so Justin wow. had all this equipment. And so I just told him, I was like, well, if you're comfortable with leaving it here, then I can start filming. And so so that's how the story of the project began. And we thought we would just cover the election cycle and then tell the story of Hamtramck, tell the story of that diversity um, and some of the challenges and its achievements through its election process. Mm. And so we spent the last year and a half um, starting at that time in, you know, November, December, January um, of 2016, 2017, working on this film. And Justin would come back every, you know, few weeks and, you know, we would film and then I was here. So I was just filming. I was going to city council meetings, you know, doing interviews, following people around and then, you know, getting lots of um, footage, you know, from around town, um, you know, throughout the year. And uh, then Justin did move to Michigan uh, for about six months of the uh, filming. Um, and so that made things a lot you know, easier. And both of us were then like really embedded into the project. And, you know, uh, the primary, you know, so there's like major events that kind of took place over the course of the film. And so there were there was the primaries, there were the um, then there were the, the actual elections themselves, and there was the inauguration. And then there's a campaigning that kind of fills mm -hmm. in between. So in a way that a film like this, um, you know, it creates its own arc you know, for a story. And so you're just kind of following it along. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we really wanted to um, tell an intimate and 
complex and nuanced story. Uh, and this climate of Islamophobia and this climate of anti-Semitism, or I'm sorry, Islamophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment and, and yeah. anti-Semitism, of course, <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, you know, you have this town that is extremely diverse. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this town which um, celebrates its diversity but also struggles with it sometimes as well. And as more and more towns begin to move towards this model, there's a lot of lessons that can be learned um, from Hamtramck's experiences um, as it goes through this process, Um, because it is a process, you know, Mm -hmm. because Hamtramck didn't always look like this. You know, it's changed, it's evolved, and it will continue to do so. For any of our listeners that are not from Michigan or the Detroit area, um, I mean— I think we've mentioned it before, actually, when Sally was here, too. We talked about it, Professor Howell, um, that it is. It's just been kind of um, kind of a starting point for a lot of immigrant communities, starting mm-hmm. with maybe, I don't know who there was, was there before, but like Polish mm-hmm. and then um, uh, Bosnian community. Many yeah. of the refugees from the ba- Balkan War mm. were there. And then um, now can it, like Yemeni and mm-hmm. Bengali population. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about yeah. just kind of the yeah. town, especially... Absolutely. It's it's always, you know, it's always been this town where, um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a transition town. It's like really like a place where, you know, people come to, mm-hmm. sometimes they'll end up somewhere else, you know, mm-hmm. but it, 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 and in ways is a transient place. And in other ways, mm-hmm. it's a place of permanence as well, because there's people that have also been there for decades. And there's like multi-generational families that, you know, uh, have lived in Hamtramck their entire lives and, and have no intention of, of going. Um, so it originally was a, a German um, town, and okay. over time it um, became Polish for many years. And I think it's there's something I don't remember the exact number, but it's something like eight for eighty years. Hemtramek has had a, a mayor of Polish descent, hmm. and so that and that continued with the re-election of, of Karen Majewski in the 2017 elections. And so they'll at least have that for another three years, you know. Um, but uh, at some point. Um, you know, with the with the closing of factories and plants, with the loss of jobs, um, you know, people began leaving Hamtramck. So at one point, the city's population was up to about 42,000. And it's dipped below, um, you know, it's dipped below, I think, like seventeen or 18,000 before. So over half the city's population, you know, wow. uh, was, you know, at one point totally gone, you know, or more than half. And so, um, and and then there were periods of time, you know, I, I, I think like in kind of in the late 80s, early 90s, when you have new immigrant communities that are starting to move in, um, a lot of people from Bangladesh, you mm-hmm. know, or Pakistan. And uh, then over time, there's other communities that start coming in. So the, the interesting thing, and Sally writes a little bit about this in her in her book, mm-hmm. and she's definitely much more um, knowledgeable about this. But uh, it's always interesting, like how certain uh, asylum seeking refugees or asylum seekers end up in certain areas, you know, so for the Bosnian refugees, they ended up in um, Hamtramck uh, because there were many efforts uh, to bring them there. Uh, one such effort was by the mayor of the town as to not dilute the European, white European nature of the town. Uh, the religion, mm-hmm. for, uh, for some reason, uh, it, it didn't matter, I guess, but mm-hmm. because they're all Slavic um, mm-hmm. heritage, you oh, know, as in a way to sort of maintain uh, hemtramic whiteness, I suppose. And um, ironically, mm-hmm. there were also efforts from the Muslim community because they're co-religionists, mm-hmm. you know, and so to, to bring them to that community and to Metro Detroit. And so, um, y- you know, so, so that community in, you know, kind of in the mid-90s and early 2000s was migrating to Hamtramck and and then there was a consistent 
uh, trickle in of people from uh, from Bangladesh as well, and then also from Yemen, mm-hmm. um, you know, Iraq, Syria. Mm-hmm. I've met people of African heritage as well in, in Hamtramck, and so um, you know, it's it's it goes without saying it's it's quite. Um, diverse. There's also this kind of funny thing where you have um, uh, migration from within the United States to Hamtramck within the Bengali community. So Astoria, Queens, you know, you have people coming that have, uh, uh, you know, they grew up in New York. And same thing with like the Yemeni community. You have people that grew up in New York, but for various reasons, like they moved to Hamtramck because of marriage or because of lower cost mm-hmm. of living. And in many ways, it resembles, you know, those parts of New York as well. You know, these mm-hmm. sort of like, ta- you know, narrow, tall houses that are really close together and being very walkable um, as well. It's a completely walkable city. You know, it's just a little over two square miles, but you could walk that circuit in about 30 minutes, you know around the major um, borders of the city, 30, 40 minutes. And so, and then everything is just inside the town, mm-hmm. you know? And so in many ways, you have no choice but to interact with people of different backgrounds. So the 70 or 80-year-old Polish grandmother has no choice but to shop at the Bengali grocery store um, or to go for services, you know, that are, you know, to a business that's owned by a Yemeni immigrant. You know, and so on and so forth, and 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 also vice versa, and um, so that kind of creates a backdrop, you know, for where Hamtramck is today. Then you kind of look at, well, what are people's hopes for the city? What are people's visions for the city, and and their aspirations, and what are the things that they're struggling with? And so, among the things that you know you'll find is that once in a while there's um, a story that comes up that's about uh the opposite you know the, the you know the tensions of multiculturalism mm-hmm. and that ma- manifests itself in you know everything from sort of neighborly miscommunication um to maybe racial profiling mm-hmm. you know there was i think a few years ago an ordinance they allowed the call to prayer to be mm-hmm. um yeah called like a loudspeaker and i think that yeah it was very you know it was hated. very controversial yeah mm-hmm. ultimately it was passed mm-hmm. um under the precedence of analogous um religious um rights or accommodations like um like um church bells mm-hmm. so that was kind of what was used um to you know make that happen and so now you have it you know and it's mm-hmm. there and you can hear it five times a day and some people are happy about it and some people are not. So, mm. Wow. But you're right. It is. I can definitely see. I mean, it's interesting you describe it as a process mm-hmm. and for both. I mean, when you look at um, studying what acculturation is, it's not just it's the host culture as well as the know, incoming. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, like one another thing you kind of notice is that and this is a whole other topic and I won't get into it too much, but it's like where do people transition to, mm. you know, ironically, uh, everyone that comes to Hamtramck then also migrates to the mm-hmm. same areas. Mm. So p- parts of like, you know, eastern uh, Oakland County or like Macomb County, Warren, Sterling Heights. So it's everyone true. from like the Bosnians, the Polish community, mm-hmm. uh, the Bengalis, the Yemenis, they're all migrating to the same areas, you know. So interesting. Yeah, they can't get away from each other. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait, you're my neighbor again. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So tell us, um, we're going to wrap up in a few minutes, but sure. your most recent project or actually like exciting news that mm-hmm. you had a grant that was just recently approved, right? Yeah. So Sally, who we've talked about quite mm-hmm. a bit in this um, in this uh, interview, um, her and I, uh, well, Sally had been working on a new book uh, at, I think she probably started in 2015 or, you know, and so I approached her in 2016 when my um, 
uh, when I was in the middle of my photojournalism fellowship with Documenting Detroit, and I knew about Sally. We had never formally met before, or we had met maybe in passing, but uh, we um, had never really spoken before. But I knew who she was, and I knew her work, and I had a great deal of respect for her. So she had done this project called Building Islam in Detroit, and it's a it's a uh, it's a repository of mosques. It's a it's an archive of Muslim communities. It's it's a number of things, but part of that is photographic documentation. So I approached Sally and I offered her, um, you know, uh, uh, photographs to contribute to the collection. And she, uh, you know, actually told me about the new book that she was working on, Halal Metropolis, and that she needed a photographer. And it would be great if it was someone from the community. And so we started working together on this project. And so I started photographing that that year on on the project and, uh, and, you know, doing interviews and things like that. And we've applied for a number of grants over the last now going on three years and mostly with no success <laughs> until this mm. year. And we got a grant from the Doris Duke foundation, uh, cool. because there's uh, several different components to the project. So it covers the, uh, community engagement part of it, you know, so it's going to be a series of exhibits. Um, it'll be Sally's book. Um, we also have a third partner, Osman Khan that we brought on last year, who's the director of the MFA program, at the University of Michigan that the Stamp School of Art and Design was another person you should have on. You know? Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so many amazing people. Yeah. And uh, so when the three of us, I think, got, you know, formed this new team and re-envisioned the project again uh, last year when Osman joined, um, it has taken more of an art focus um, and an exhibit focus. Um, and so that put us in a mm-hmm. better position, I think, with Doris Duke, with the Knight Foundation and some of the other grants that we're hoping to apply for and, and hopefully get. And uh, so the project is called Halal Metropolis, and it focuses on uh, Muslim visibility in Southeast Michigan, but also contribution, contributions. And so looking at how Muslims make themselves visible to one another, how they make themselves visible to non-Muslims, how non-Muslims accommodate for and make themselves and their services when we're talking about businesses, uh, visible to Muslims. So, you know, there's many um, examples of this. You know, the Dearborn Library has a sign in Arabic that says library Mm. on it. You know, um, if you go to Myers in Melvindale, um, there's a section for Ramadan, and I'm sure they're setting it up this weekend, you know. (laughs) But I remember last year walking into a Myers grocery store, and there was a little, you know, section, you know, Ramadan treats, you know, Ramadan. And it's like, you know, it was like dates and like Middle Eastern products. And so it's like a little bit, you know, stereotypical. But, (laughs) but, you know, they had – it was really nice to see that, you know, they're – they're um, targeting their demographic, mm-hmm. you know. Um, those little things make a big difference. They make a big difference. Huge difference. Yeah, like absolutely. When we were growing up, we could never find keychains with our names on them oh, in, yeah. the, in the gas yeah. stations or anything. Like Ramadan was like this weird time, yeah. of, you know, of the year and Eid. Nobody knew what that was. And so as a kid, I can imagine, and as an adult, it's like you just get so excited. You're like, yeah. oh, wow. Like I noticed oh, yeah. in my – um, local Kroger that they had like Eid cards, greeting oh, cards. And I was wow. like, oh my God, this is that's, so exciting. That's so amazing. Yeah. You know, a, cu- and a couple of years. And so that doesn't come without its tensions as mm-hmm. well. You know, a couple of years ago, I think Whole Foods, you know, people were protesting that they had like a halal section or they, they did a whole oh. section for Ramadan as well. So there's already stuff that they have, you know, mm-hmm. they carry Saffron Road and yeah, some like other that. halal products mm-hmm. and they just made a special display. Nobody would have thought twice about it, you know, knowing mm-hmm. that there's Sharia compliant food and Whole Foods, you know, oh, most yeah. of it is, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um, but once they put it in a special section, then, wow. you know, all hell breaks loose. And so, um, but Whole Foods, to their credit, they maintain their commitment to diversity and tolerance, and they 
they upheld that, wow, you know, that cool. display. Know that. So, um, you know, so these are some of the ways in which there's accommodations and then also there's visibility as well, you know. So, um, you know, it's like if a restaurant opens up in Detroit that's not owned by a Muslim um, that, you know, they might offer halal meat. You know, a great example is M Cantina, which is a very high-end, um, really amazing restaurant, um, and they sell halal meat, you know, or they use halal meat in their food and and they don't serve alcohol, you know, mm-hmm. and... It's you know if you go in there and the place is packed you know, uh, and you know they're they're running a successful business and at the same time it's catering to the demographic that's in their community, you know so they're serving their community, and um, you know so that's that's part of it you know and then you know like I said there's there's also some tensions that come as well and when Muslims are trying to build a mosque you know there's an example from Sterling Heights or Pittsfield Township in the last mm-hmm. couple of years and it's always generally the kind of the same thing it's like. You know, community proposes mosque to a municipal, you know, entity. The entity approves. Then somebody raises the specter of whatever, you know, terrorism, all these things, Islamophobia. And then, mm-hmm. and then the city rescinds. And then CARE comes in. CARE files mm-hmm. a lawsuit. Then the city <laughs> loses. And then the city has to pay, you know, hundreds of thousands or sometimes millions of dollars to the mosque, effectively paying for it, you know. And so mm-hmm. this has happened in Michigan. At least the two cases I can think of are Pittsfield and, and Sterling Heights. But, you know, all over mm-hmm. the country this is happening, you know. And so um, so that's, you know, that's also a part of it as well, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, it's also looking at some of the contributions and how Muslims, by being here and by contributing, are actually beginning to change the landscape of the environment, you know. So that's what, so the, so the, the project will incorporate, you know, Sally's research and writing. Um, my photography and Asman will be creating and curating um, artifacts and artwork, um, built structures, um, and uh and and doing installation work um at six or seven galleries around southeast michigan so and we wanted to go to areas like you know dearborn and ann arbor but also looking at places like macomb county and downriver as well and maybe outside the state too yeah um i think that's very much a possibility yeah Mm -hmm. wow yeah wow well thank you so much for sharing your story and for documenting all of these stories you know it's like the highs and the lows and there, I imagine. I mean, it's it's really important to document it and share these stories. Um, you know, many um, minority groups, immigrant groups, kind of go through um, similar kind of pathways and processes, and so it's really important. I think, and that's you know uh, what you're doing. Yeah. Um, really important to kind of share that um, and and really share it and follow it and. Um, uh, learn from it i think so eventually i mean that's why we document history right yeah absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. so wow well thank you so much for sharing that that's like amazing work (laughs) just um personally and the impact and just like you know the art of collaboration but kind of where you came from it's really really interesting i know that you were saying that it was going to be kind of awkward talking about yourself but (laughs) it's it's, it's awkward but it's also often the easiest thing to talk about yeah exactly (laughs) that's kind of what i found and that's why um and i mean it's similar to kind of what the idea of um this podcast too Mm -hmm. um you know really inspired by calvin who really gave Mm -hmm. me kind of the push to do it but Mm -hmm. sharing kind of um really important i think stories that as a means also to um, inspire each other too so yeah and and maybe that'll be my next project as a podcast (laughs) i think you should (laughs) (laughs) so thank you so much rezi it was awesome to have you on thanks for having me on and um, oh you're welcome this is awesome it was my honor um and privilege 
and just want to thank all of our listeners. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And again, please um, subscribe to the show on iTunes and catch up on all of our previous episodes. And I, I actually like losing count, but um, this is actually episode, and I shouldn't say, I should have said it in the beginning, but um, I thought it was 37, but I actually, I think it's 38. Hmm. So, yeah. So, um, so thank you, everyone, for following and please share, um, share with your friends. Um, and again, you know, hopefully you are all inspired by um, some of the stories that we share here. Um, thank you, Jess. And we'll My see pleasure. you next time on another episode here on Unsung Heroes, a podcast Detroit. Thanks, everyone.